Hi, my name is Jonathan Peza, and welcome to episode 5 of the weekly podcast, Pulp, where we take a journey one page at a time through the literary underground of pulp fiction. We are once again breaking ground into a new and extremely important genre in pulp fiction this week, sword and sorcery. If you thought J.R.R. Tolkien invented epic fantasy and the first imaginary world where sword-swinging heroes and wielders of magic went head-to-head with forces of evil, you would be wrong. The first edition of The Hobbit was published in 1937, and The Fellowship of the Ring wouldn't be released until 1954. Long before either of these stories, a handful of writers in the pulps had already forged the beginnings of a new genre that would go on to be dubbed Sword and Sorcery. Drawing on Arthurian legends, the Norse saga, and swashbuckling tales like Alexander Dumas' Three Musketeers, Robert E. Howard created what is considered the first true entry into the genre in 1929 with his story The Shadow Kingdom, which featured the sword-swinging hero Cull of Atlantis, or better known as Cull the Conqueror. Following that, with his 1932 story The Phoenix on the Sword featuring that signature barbarian we all know as Conan, he would establish one of the most prolific genres in modern media. Now, the works of Robert E. Howard and his influence in the genre has been something most audiences have been at least peripherally aware of for decades, but something people may not know is that he was very much not alone. Along with Howard were innovators like C.L. Moore, Fritz Lieber, Michael Moorcock, Lynn Carter, Lee Brackett, Andre Norton, and today's author Clark Ashton Smith. Without their genre-defining imaginations, recent entries like Game of Thrones, The Witcher, and classics like Willow, Legend, Red Sonja, and Dragonheart likely wouldn't exist. But perhaps the most notable creation that was spawned out of the pages of pulp magazines like Weird Tales Fantastic Adventure, Fantasy Magazine, and Startling Stories was the 1974 tabletop role-playing game written by Dave Arneson and Gary Gygax. You guessed it, Dungeons & Dragons, which has sold over $1 billion in game books over its 46 years of publication, and billions more in video games, movies, novels, and pretty much anything else you can think of. So we have a huge episode for you today. Clark Ashton Smith's The Dark Eidolon was first published in the January 1935 issue of Weird Tales. In his career, he published over 132 known short stories and novellas, and countless poems. He sold his very first stories in 1910 at the age of 17. His contributions to sword and sorcery and the weird fiction genre are generally broken into four groups, separated by the imaginary worlds in which they are set. Today's story takes place on the imaginary last continent of Zothik, a far future version of the Middle East set under a dying sun in a world where humanity has lost its technology and become a polytheistic diaspora of rising and falling empires. His use of dark wizards and creatures like liches and archdemons, mummies and skeletons would deeply influence the future of the genre. Smith's prose is at times poetic, and his unique use of language paints a vivid picture that is equal parts thrilling and horrifying. I've done my very best to pronounce some of the more colorful words correctly, but in a few cases I've adjusted the text to help the audience. If you like Game of Thrones, this is the story for you. 
but in much the same way it includes graphic violence and sexual content along the lines of an R-rated film. So, without further ado, sit back, turn out the lights, and let me tell you a story. The Sidon, Lord of Seven Hells, wherein the single serpent dwells, with volumes drawn from pit to pit, through fire and darkness infinite, thy Sidon, son of nether skies, thine ancient evil never dies, for a thy somber fulgurous flame on sunken worlds that have no name. Man's heart enthrones thee still supreme, though the false sorcerers blaspheme. The Song of Zethra On Zothic, the last continent on earth, the sun no longer shone with the whiteness of its prime, but was dim and tarnished as if with a vapor of blood. New stars without number had declared themselves in the heaven, and the shadows of the infinite had fallen closer, and out of the shadows the elder gods had returned to man. The gods forgotten by Hyperborea, since Mew and Poseidonus, bearing other names but the same attributes. And the elder demons had also returned, battened on the fumes of evil sacrifice, and fostering again the primordial sorceries. Many were the necromancers and magicians of Zothik, and the infamy and marvel of their doings was legended everywhere in the latter days. But among them all was none greater than Namira who imposed his black yoke on the cities of Zylac, and later, in a proud delirium, deemed himself the veritable peer of the Sidon, Lord of Evil. Namira had built his abode in Umos, the chief town of Zylac, to which he came from the desert realm of Tassoon, with the dark renown of his thaumaturgies like a cloud of desert storm behind him. And no man knew that in coming to Umos, he returned to the city of his birth for all deemed him a native of Tassoon. Indeed, none could have dreamt that the great sorcerer was one with the beggar Narthos, an orphan of questionable parentage, who had begged his daily bread on the streets and bazaars of Umos. Wretchedly he had lived alone and despised, and a hatred of the cruel opulent city grew in his heart like a smothered flame that feeds in secret. Biding the time, when it shall be a conflagration consuming all things. Bitter always through his boyhood and early youth was the spleen and rancor of Narthos towards men. And one day the prince Zatula, a boy but little older than he, riding a restive palfrey, came upon him in a square before the imperial palace, and Narthos implored an alms. But Zatula, scorning his plea, rode arrogantly forward, spurring the palfrey, and Narthos was ridden down and trampled under its hooves. And afterward, nigh to death from the trampling, he lay senseless for many hours, while the people passed him by unheeding, and at last regaining his senses, he dragged himself to his hovel, but he limped a little thereafter all his days, and the mark of one hoof remained like a brand on his body, fading never. Later, he left Umos and was forgotten quickly by its people. Going southward into Tassoon, he lost his way in the great desert, and was near to perishing, but finally he came to a small oasis, where dwelt the wizard Ophelok. 
a hermit who preferred the company of honest jackals and hyenas to that of men. And Ophelok, seeing the great craft and evil in the starving boy, gave succor to Narthos and sheltered him. He dwelt for years with Ophelak, becoming the wizard's pupil and the heir to his demon-rested lore. Strange things he learned in that hermitage, being fed on fruits and grain that had sprung not from the watered earth, and wine that was not the juice of terrene grapes. And like Ophelok, he became a master in devildom, and drove his own bond with the archfiend Thysodon. When Ophelok died, he took the name of Numira, and went forth as a mighty sorcerer among the wandering peoples and the deep-buried mummies of Tassoon. But never could he forget the miseries of his boyhood in Umos, and the wrong he had endured from Zatula, and year after year he spun over in his thoughts the black web of revenge. And his name grew even darker and vaster, and men feared in remote lands beyond Tassoon. With baited whispers they spoke of his deeds in the cities of Yoros, and in Zalbashir the abode of the ghoulish deity Mordigian. And long before the coming of Nemira himself, the people of Umos knew him as a fabled scourge that was direr than Samum or Pestilence. Now in the years that followed the going forth of the boy Narthos from Umos, Pithame, the father of Prince Satula, was slain by the sting of a small adder that had crept into his bed for warmth on an autumn night. Some said that the adder had been purveyed by Satula, but this was a thing no man could verily affirm. After the death of Pithame, Zatula, being his only son, was emperor of Zylak, and ruled evilly from his throne in Umos. Indolent he was, and tyrannic, and full of strange luxuries and cruelties, but the people, who were also evil, acclaimed him in his turpitude. So he prospered, and the lords of heaven and hell smote him not. And the red sun and ashen moons went westward over Zylak, falling into that seldom-voyaged sea which, if the mariner's tales were true, poured evermore like a swiftening river past the infamous Isle of Nat, and fell in a worldwide cataract upon nether space from the far, sheer edge of earth. Grosser still he grew, and his sins were as over-swollen fruit that ripen above a deep abyss, but the winds of time blew softly and the fruits fell not. And Zatula laughed amid his fools and his eunuchs and his laymans, and the tale of his luxuries was born afar, and was told by dim outland peoples as a twin marvel with the brooded necromancies of Namira. It came to pass, in the year of the hyena and the month of the star Canicule, that a great feast was given by Zatula to the inhabitants of Umos. Meats that had been cooked in exotic spices from Sotar Isle of the East were spread everywhere and the ardent wines of Yoros and Zylak, filled as with subterranean fires, were poured inexhaustibly from huge urns for all. The wines awoke a furious mirth and a royal madness, and afterwards they brought a slumber no less profound than the lathe of the tomb. And one by one as they drank, the revelers fell down in the streets, the houses and gardens, as if a plague had struck them. And Zatula slept in his banquet hall of gold and ebony with his chamberlains around him. So in all Umos there was no man or woman wakeful at the hour when Sirius began to fall towards the west. Thus it was that none saw or heard the coming of Namira. But 
Awakening heavily in the latter forenoon, the Emperor Zatula heard a confused babble, a troublous clamor of voices from such of his eunuchs and women as had awakened before him. Inquiring the cause, he was told that a strange prodigy had occurred during the night, but being still bemused with wine and slumber, he comprehended little enough of its nature, till his favorite concubine Obexa led him to the eastern portico of the palace from which he could behold the marvel with his own eyes. Now the palace stood alone in the center of Umos, and to the north, west, and south, for wide intervals of distance there stretched the imperial gardens, full of superbly arching palms and loftily spiring fountains. But to eastward was a broad open sea, used as a sort of common between the palace and the mansions of the high optimates. And in this space, which had lain wholly vacant at eve, a building towered colossal and lordly beneath the full-risen sun, with domes like monstrous fungi of stone that had come up in the night. And the domes, rearing level with those of Zatula, were builded of death-white marble. And the huge façade with multi-columned porticos and deep balconies was wrought in alternate zones of night-black onyx and porphyry-hued as with dragon's blood. And Zatula swore lewdly, calling with hoarse blasphemies on the gods and devils of Zylac, And great was his dumbfoundment, seeming the marvel a work of wizardry. The women gathered around him, crying out with shill cries of awe and horror. More and more of his courtiers awakened and came to swell the hubbub, and the fat castradus dittered in their cloth of gold like immense black jellies in gold basins. But Zatula, mindful of his dominion as emperor of all Zylac, strove to conceal his own trepidation, saying, Now who is this that has presumed to enter Umos like a jackal in the dark, and has made his impious den in proximity and counterview of my palace? Go forth and inquire the miscreant's name, but ere you go instruct the headsman to make sharp his double-handed sword. Then, fearing the emperor's wrath if they tarried, certain of the chamberlains went forth unwillingly and approached the portals of the strange edifice. It seemed that the portals were deserted till they drew near, and then, on the threshold, there appeared a titanic skeleton, taller than any man of earth, and it strode forward to meet them with L-long strides. The skeleton was swathed in a loincloth of scarlet silk with a buckle of jet, and it wore a black turban starred with diamonds whose topmost foldings nearly touched the high lintel. Eyes like flickering marsh fires burned in its deep eye sockets, and a blackened tongue like that of a long-dead man protruded between its teeth. But otherwise it was clean of flesh, and the bones glittered whitely in the sun as it came onward. The chamberlains were mute before it, and there was no sound except the golden creaking of their girdles, the shrill rustling of their silks as they shook and trembled. The footbones of the skeleton clicked sharply on the pavement of black onyx as it paused, and the putrefying tongue began to quiver between its teeth, and it uttered these words in an unctuous voice. Return and tell the Emperor Zatula that Namira, seer and magician, has come to dwell beside him. Hearing the skeleton speak as if it had been a living man, and hearing the dread name of Namira as men hear the toxin of doom in some fallen city, the chamberlains could stand before it no longer, and they fled with ungainly swiftness and bore the message to Zatula. 
Now learning who it was that had come to neighbor with him in Umos, the emperor's wrath died out like a feeble and blustering flame, on which the winds of darkness had blown, and the vinous purple of his cheeks was mottled with a strange pallor, and he said nothing, but his lips mumbled loosely as if in prayer or malediction. And the news of Namira's coming passed like a flight of evil nightbirds through all the palace and throughout the city, leaving a noisome terror that abode in Umos thereafter till the end. For Namira, through the black renown of his thaumaturgies and the frightful entities who served him, had become a power that no secular sovereign dared dispute, and men feared him everywhere, even as they feared the gigantic, shadowy lords of hell and of outer space. And in Umos, people said that he had come on the desert wind of Tassoon, with his underlings, even as a pestilence comes, and had reared his house in an hour with the aid of devils beside Zatula's palace. And they said that the foundations of the house were laid on an adamantine cope of hell, and in its floors were pits at whose bottom burned the nether flames, or stars could be seen as they passed under the lowermost night. And the followers of Namira were the dead of strange kingdoms, the demons of the sky and earth and the abyss, and mad, impious, hybrid things that the sorcerer himself created from forbidden unions. Men shunned the neighborhood of this lordly house, and in the palace of Zatula few cared to approach the windows and balconies that gave thereon. And the emperor spoke not of Namira, pretending to ignore the intruder. But the sorcerer himself was not beheld by the people of that city, though some believed that he walked forth at will, clad with invisibility. His servitors were likewise not seen, but a howling as of the damned was sometimes heard to issue from his portals, and sometimes there came a strange cachinnation, as if some adamantine image had laughed aloud. And sometimes there was a chuckling like the sound of shattered ice in a frozen hell. Dim shadows moved in the porticos when there was neither sunlight nor lamp to cast them, and red, eerie lights appeared and vanished in the windows at eve, like a blinking of demonic eyes. And slowly the ember-colored suns went over Zylac and were quenched in the far seas, and the ashy moons were blackened as if they fell nightly towards the hidden gulf. Then, seeing that the wizard had wrought no open evil, and that none had endured palpable harm from his presence, the people took heart, and Zatula drank deeply, and feasted in oblivious luxury as before. And Dark Thesidon, prince of all turpitudes, was the true but never acknowledged lord of Zylac. And in time, the men of Umos bragged a little about Namira and his dread thaumaturgies, even as they had boasted of the purple sins of Zatula. But Namira, still unbeheld by living men and living women, sat in the inner walls of that house which his devils had reared for him, and spun over and over in his thoughts the black web of revenge, and the wrong done by Zatula to Narthos in old times was the least of those cruelties which the emperor had forgotten. Now, when the fears of Zatula were somewhat lulled, and his women gossiped less often of the neighboring wizard, there occurred a new wonder and a fresh terror. For, sitting one eve at his banquet table with his courtiers about him, the emperor heard a noise as of a myriad iron-shod hooves that came trampling through the palace gardens, 
And the courtiers also heard the sound and were startled amid their mounting drunkenness. The emperor was angered, and he sent certain of his guards to examine into the cause of the trampling. But peering forth upon the moonbright lawns, the guards beheld no visible shape. Though the loud sounds of trampling still went to and fro, it seemed as if a rout of wild stallions passed and repassed before the façade of the wild palace with tumultuous gallopings and capricoles. A fear came upon the guards as they looked and listened, and they dared not venture forth but returned to Zatula. The emperor himself grew sober when he heard their tale and went forth with high blusterings to view the prodigy. And all night the unseen hooves rang out sonorously on the pavement of onyx and ran with deep thuddings over the grasses and flowers. The palm fronds waved on the windless air as if parted by racing steeds, and visibly the tall-stemmed lilies and broad-petaled exotic blossoms were trodden under. Rage and terror nested together in Zatula's heart as he stood in a balcony above the garden, hearing the spectral tumult and beholding the harm done to his rarest flower beds. The women, the courtiers, and eunuchs cowered behind him, and there was no slumber for any occupant in the palace. But towards dawn, the clamor of hooves departed going towards Demira's house. When the dawn was full grown above Umos, the emperor walked forth with his guards about him and saw that the crushed grasses and broken down stems were blackened as if by fire where the hooves had fallen. Plainly were the marks imprinted like the tracks of a great company of horses in all the lawns, but they ceased at the verge of the gardens. And though everyone believed that the visitation had come from Namira, there was no proof of this in the grounds that fronted the sorcerer's abode, for there the turf was untrodden. A pox upon Namira if he has done this, cried Zatula. For what harm have I ever done him? Verily I shall set my heel on the dog's neck, and the torture wheel shall serve him even as these horses from hell have served my blood-red lilies from Solar, and my vein-colored irises from Nott and my orchids from Ukastrog. Yea, though he stand the viceroy of the Sadon above earth, and the overlord of ten thousand devils, my wheel shall break him, and fire shall heat the wheel white-hot in its turning till he withers black as the seared blossoms. Thus did Zatula make his brag, but he issued no orders for the execution of his threat. And no man stirred from the palace towards Namira's house. And from the portal of the wizard, none came forth, or if any came, there was no visible sign or sound. So the day went on, and the night rose, bringing later a moon that was slightly darkened at the rim. And the night was silent, and Zatula, sitting long at the banquet table, drained his wine cup often and wrathfully, muttering new threats against Namira. And the night wore on, and it seemed that the visitation would not be repeated, but at midnight, Lying in his chamber with Obexa, and fathom deep in his slumber from the wine, Zatula was awakened by a monstrous clangor of hooves that raced and capered in the palace porticos and in the long balconies. All night the hooves thundered back and forth, echoing awfully from the vaulted stone while Zatula and Obexa, listening, huddled close amid their cushions and coverlets. All the occupants of the palace, wakeful and fearful, heard the noise but stirred not from their chambers. A little before dawn, the hooves departed suddenly, and afterward, by day, their mark was found on the marble flags of the porches and balconies. And the marks were countless, deep graven, 
and black as if branded there by flame. Like mottled marble were the emperor's cheeks when he saw the hoof-printed floors, and terror stayed with him henceforth, following him into the depths of inebriety, since he knew not where the haunting would cease. His women murmured, and some wished to flee Umos, and it seemed that the revels of the day and evening were shadowed by ill wings that left their umbrage in the yellow wine, and bedimmed the lamps. Again, toward midnight the slumber of Zatula was broken by the hoofs, which came galloping and pacing on the palace roof and through all the corridors and halls. Thereafter till dawn the hoofs filled the palace with their iron clangings, and they rung hollowly on the topmost domes, as if the coursers of the gods had trodden there, passing from heaven to heaven in tumultuous cavalcade. Zatula and Obexa lying together while the terrible hooves went to and fro in the hall outside their chamber, had no heart or thought of sin, nor could they find any comfort in their nearness. In the grey hour before dawn they heard a great thundering high on the barred brazen door of the room, as if some mighty stallion, rearing, had drummed there with his forefeet. And soon after this, the hooves went away, leaving a silence like an interlude in some gathering storm of doom. Later the marks of the hooves were found everywhere in the halls marring the bright mosaics. Black holes were burnt in the golden-threaded rugs and the rugs of silver and scarlet. And far up, on the brazen door of Zatula's chamber, the prints of a horse's forefeet were incised deeply. In Umos and throughout Silac, the tale of this haunting became known, and the thing was deemed an ominous prodigy though people differed in their interpretations. Some held that the sending came from Namira and was meant as a token of his supremacy above all kings and emperors, and some thought that it came from a new wizard that had risen in Tinarath far to the east, and who wished to supplant Namira, and the priests of the gods of Zylak, held that their various deities had dispatched the haunting as a sign that more sacrifices were required in the temples. Then, in the hall of audience, whose floor of Sard and Jasper had been grievously pocked by the unseen hooves, Zatula called together many priests and magicians and soothsayers, and asked them to declare the causes of the sending and devise a mode of exorcism. But seeing that there was no agreement among them, Zatula provided the several priestly sects with the wherewithal of sacrifice to their sundry gods, and sent them away. The wizards and prophets, under threat of decapitation if they refused, were enjoined to visit Namira in his mansion of sorcery, and learn his will if haply the sending were his, and not the work of another. Loath were the wizards and soothsayers, fearing Namira, and caring not to intrude upon the frightful mysteries of his obscene mansion. But the swordsmen of the emperor drove them forth, lifting great crescent blades against them when they tarried. So, one by one in a straggling order the delegation went towards Namira's portals, and vanished into the devil-builded house. Pale, muttering, and distraught like men who have looked upon hell and have seen their own doom, they returned before sunset to the emperor. They said that Namira had received them courteously and had sent them back with a message. Be it known to Zatula that the haunting is a sign of that which he has long forgotten, 
and the reason of the haunting will be revealed to him at an hour prepared and set apart by destiny. And the hour draws near. For Namira bids the emperor and all the court to a great feast on the afternoon of the morrow. Having delivered this message to the wonder and consternation of Zatula, the delegation begged his leave to depart, and though the emperor questioned them minutely, they seemed unwilling to relate the circumstances of the visit to Namira. Nor would they describe the sorcerer's fabled house, except in vague manner, each contradicting the other as to what they had seen. So after a little, Zatula bade them go, and when they had gone, he sat musing for a long while on the invitation of Namira, which was a thing he cared not to accept, but feared to decline. That evening he drank even more liberally than was his wont, and he slept a lethean slumber, nor was there any noise of trampling hooves about the palace to awaken him. But silently, during the night, the prophets and magicians passed like furtive shadows from Umos, and no man saw them depart. And at morning they were gone from Zylak into other lands, never to return. Now on that same evening in the great hall of his house, Namira sat alone, having dismissed the familiars who attended him ordinarily. Before him on an altar of jet was the dark gigantic statue of Thesidon, which the devil-begotten sculptor had wrought in ancient days for an evil king of Tassoon, called Farnok. The archdemon was depicted in the guise of a full-armored warrior, lifting a spiky mace as if in heroic battle. Long had the statue lain in the desert-sunken palace of Farnok, whose very sight was disputed by the nomads, and Demira, by his divination, had found it and reared up the infernal image to abide with him always thereafter. Often, through the mouth of the statue, the Sidon would utter oracles to Namira, and would answer interrogations. Before the black-armored image there hung seven silver lamps, wrought in the form of horses' skulls, with flames issuing changeably in blue and purple and crimson from their eye sockets. And the face of the demon peering from under his crested helmet was filled with malign, equivocal shadows that shifted and changed eternally. Sitting in his serpent-carven chair, Namira regarded the statue grimly, with a deep-furrowed frown between his eyes, for he had asked a certain thing of the Sidon, and the fiend replying through the statue had refused him. Rebellion was in the heart of Namira, grown mad with pride, and deeming himself the lord of all sorcerers and a ruler in his own right among the princes of devildom. So, after a long pondering, he repeated his request, in a bold and haughty voice, like one who addresses an equal rather than an all-formidable suzerain to whom he has sworn fatal fealty. I have helped you herefore in all things, said the image with stony and sonorous accents that were echoed metallically in the seven silver lamps. Yea, the undying worms of fire and darkness have come forth like an army to your summons, and the wings of nether genie have risen to occlude the sun when you called them. But verily I will not aid you in this vengeance you have planned, for the Emperor Zatula has done me no wrong, and has served me well though unwittingly. 
the people of Xylac, by reason of their turpitudes, are not the least of my terrestrial worshippers. Therefore, Namira, it were well for you to live in peace with Zatula, and well to forget his olden wrong that was done to the beggar boy Narthos. For the ways of destiny are strange, and the workings of its laws are sometimes hidden. And truly, if the hooves of Zatula's palfrey had not spurned you and trodden you under, your life would have been otherwise. And the name and renown of Namira had still slept in oblivion as a dream undreamt. Yea, you would tarry still as a beggar in Umos, content with a beggar's guerdon, and would never have fared forth to become the pupil of the wise and learned Ophelak. And I, the Sidon, would have lost the lordliest of all necromancers who have accepted my service and bond. Think well, Namira, and ponder these matters, for both of us, it would seem, are indebted to Zatula in all gratitude for the trampling he gave you. Yea, there is a debt, Namira growled implacably, and truly, I will pay that debt tomorrow, even as I have planned. There are those who will aid me, those who will answer my summon in your despite. It's an ill thing to affront me, said the image after an interval. And also, it is not wise to call upon those you designate. However, I perceive clearly that such is your intent. You are proud, and stubborn, and revengeful. Do then as you will, but blame me not for the outcome. So after this, there was a silence in the hall, where Namira sat before the Eidolon and the flames burned darkly with changeable colors in the skull-shapen lamps, and the shadows fled and returned, unresting, on the face of the statue and the face of Nemera. Then, toward midnight, the necromancer arose, and went upwards by many spiral stairs to a high dome in his house in which there was a single, small, round window that looked forth on the constellations. The window was set on the top of the dome, but Namira had contrived by means of his magic that one entering by the last spiral of the stairs would suddenly seem to descend rather than climb, and reaching the last step would peer downward through the window while the stars passed under him in a giddying gulf. Then, lying prone on the interior of the dome, with his face over the abyss and his long beard trailing stiffly into space, he whispered a pre-human rune and held speech with certain entities who belonged neither to hell nor the mundane elements, and were more fearsome to invoke than the infernal genie or the devils of hell, air, water, and flame. With them, he made his contract, defying the Sidon's will, while the air curdled around him with their voices, and rhyme gathered palely on his sable beard from the cold that was wrought by their breathing as they leaned earthward. Laggard and loath was the awakening of Zatula from his wine, and quickly, ere he opened his eyes, the daylight was poisoned for him by the thought of that invitation, 
which he feared to accept or decline. But he spoke to Obexus, saying, Who, after all, is this wizardly dog? That I should obey his summons like a beggar called in from the street by some haughty lord. Obexa, a golden-skinned and oblique-eyed girl from Ukastrog, Isle of the Torturers, eyed the emperor subtly and said, O oh, Zatula, it is yours to accept or refuse, as you deem fitting. And truly, it is a small matter for the lord of Umos and all Zylak, whether to go or stay, since naught can impugn his sovereignty. Therefore, were it not as well to go? For Obexa, though fearful of the wizard, was curious regarding that devil-builded house of which so little was known. And likewise, she wished to behold the famed Namira, whose mane and appearance were still but a far-thought legend in Umos. There is something in what you say, admitted Zatula, but an emperor in his conduct must always consider the public good, and there are matters of state involved. So later in the forenoon, after an ample, well-irrigated breakfast, he called his chamberlains and courtiers about him and took counsel with them. Some advised him to ignore the invitation of Namira, and others held that the invitation be accepted, lest a greater evil than the trampling of ghostly hooves be sent upon the palace and the city. Then Satula called the many priesthoods before him in a body and sought to resummon the wizards and soothsayers who had fled privily in the night. Among all the latter, there was none who answered the crying of his name through Umos, and this aroused a certain wonder. But the priests came in greater number than before, and thronged the hall of audience so that the paunches of the foremost were straightened against the imperial dais, and the buttocks of the hindmost were flattened against the rear wall and pillars. And Zatula debated with them the matter of acceptance or refusal, that Namira was nowhere wise concerned with the sending, and his invitation, they said, portended no harm nor bail to the emperor, and it was plain, from the terms of the message, that an oracle would be imparted to Zatula by the wizard, and this oracle, if Namira were a true archmage, would confirm their own holy wisdom and re-establish the divine forces of the sending, and the gods of Zylak would again be glorified. Then, Having heard the pronouncement of the priests, the emperor instructed his treasurers to load them down with new offerings, to call unctuously upon Zatula and his household the vicarious blessings of the several gods. And so the priests departed, and the day wore on, and the sun passed its meridian, falling slowly beyond Umos through the spaces of the afternoon that were floored with sea-ending deserts. Still, Zatula was irresolute, and he called his wine-bearers, bidding them pour him the strongest and most magistral of their vintages. But in the wine, he found neither certitude nor decision. Sitting still on his throne in his hall of audience, he heard towards middle afternoon a mighty and clamorous outcry that arose from the palace portals. There were deep wailings of men, and the shrillings of eunuchs, as if terror passed from tongue to tongue, invading the halls and apartments. The fearful clamor spread throughout the palace, and Zatula, rousing from the lethargy of wine, was about to send his attendants to inquire the cause. Then, into the hall there filed an array of tall mummies, clad in royal cerements of purple and scarlet, and wearing gold crowns on their withered craniums. After them, like servitors, came gigantic skeletons who wore loincloths of nacarat orange, and about whose skulls, from brow to crown, 
live serpents of banded saffron and ebon had wrapped themselves for headdresses. The mummies bowed before Zatula, saying with thin, seer voices, We who were kings of the wide realm of Tasum aforetime have been sent as a guard of honor for the Emperor Zatula to attend him as is befitting when he goes forth to the feast prepared by Namira. Then with dry clickings of their teeth and whistlings as of air through screens of fretted ivory, the skeletons spoke. We who were giant warriors of a race forgotten have been sent by Namira so that the emperor's household, following him to the feast, should be guarded from all peril and should fare forth in such pageantry as is meet and proper. Witnessing these prodigies, the wine-bearers and other attendants cowered about the imperial dais or hid behind the pillars, while Zatula, with pupils swimming starkly in bloodshot white, with face bloated and ghastly pale, sat frozen on his throne and could utter no word in reply to the ministers of Namira. Then, coming forward, the mummy said in dusty accents, All is made ready, and the feast awaits the arrival of Zatula. The cerements of the mummies stirred and fell open at the bosom, and small rodent monsters, brown as bitumen, eyes as with accursed rubies, reared forth from the eaten hearts of the mummies like rats from their holes, and chittering shrilly in human speech, repeating the words. The skeletons, in turn, took up the solemn sentence, and the black and saffron serpents hissed it from their skulls and the words were repeated lastly in baleful rumblings by certain furry creatures of dubious form, hitherto unseen by Zatula, who sat behind the ribs of the skeletons as if in cages of white wicker. Like a dreamer who obeys the doom of dreams, the emperor rose from his throne and went forward, and the mummies surrounded him like an escort, and each of the skeletons drew from the reddish-yellow folds of his loincloth a curiously pierced archaic flute of silver, and all began a sweet and evil and deathly fluting as the emperor went out through the halls of the palace. A fatal spell was in the music, for the chamberlains, the women, the guards, the eunuchs, and all the members of Zatula's households, even to the cooks and scullions, were drawn like a procession of night walkers from the rooms and alcoves in which they had vainly hidden themselves. And marshaled by the flutists, they followed after Zatula. A strange thing it was to behold this mighty company of people going forth in the slanted sunlight towards Namira's house, with a cordage of dead kings about them, and the blown breath of skeletons thrilling eldritchly in the silver flutes. Little was Zatula comforted when he found Obexa at his side, moving as he, in a thraldom of invalent horror. Coming to the open portals of Namira's house, the Emperor saw that they were guarded by great, crimson-waddled things, half-dragon, half-man, sweeping their waddles like bloody besoms on a flag of dark onyx. The Emperor passed with Obexa between the louding monsters, with the mummies, the skeletons, and his own people behind him in a strange pageant, and entered a vast and multi-columned hall, where the daylight, following timidly, was drowned by the baleful, arrogant blaze of a thousand lamps. Even amidst his horror, 
Zatula marveled at the vastness of the chamber, which he could hardly reconcile with the mansion's outer length and height and breadth, though these indeed were of a most palatial amplitude. For it seemed that he gazed down great avenues of topless pillars, vistas of tables laden with piled-up viands and thronged urns of wine that stretched away before him into luminous distance and gloom as of starless night. In the wide intervals between the tables, the familiars of Namira and his other servants went to and fro incessantly, as if a phantasmagoria of ill dreams were embodied before the emperor. Kingly cadavers in robes of time-rotten brocade, with worms seething in their eye pits, pouring a blood-like wine into cups of the opulescent horns of unicorns. Lamias, trident-tailed, and four-breasted chimeras came in with fuming platters lifted high by their brazen claws. Dog-headed devils, tongued with lolling flames, ran forward to offer themselves as ushers to the company. Verily, it seemed to Zatula that they had gone a long way into some malignly litten cavern of hell. When they came to that perspective of tables and columns down which the monster had led them, here, at the room's end, apart from the rest, was a table at which Namira sat alone, with the flames of the seven horse skull lamps burning restlessly behind him, and the mailed black image of Thessidon towering from an altar of jet at his right hand. A little aside from the altar, a diamond mirror was upborne by the claws of iron basilisks. Nymeria rose to greet them, observing a solemn and funereal courtesy. His eyes were bleak and cold as distant stars in the hollows wrought by strange fearful vigils. His lips were like a pale red seal on a shut parchment of doom. His beard flowed stiffly in black anointed banded locks across the bosom of his vermilion robe, like a mass of straight black serpents. Zatula felt the blood pause and thicken about his heart, as if congealing into ice, and Obexa, peering beneath lowered lids, was abashed and frightened by the visible horror that invested this man and hung upon him even as royalty upon a king. But amid her fear, she found room to wonder what manner of man he was in his intercourse with women. I bid you welcome, O Zotula, to such hospitality as is mine to offer said Namira, with the iron ringing of some hidden funereal bell deep down in his hollow voice. Prithee be seated at my table. Zatula saw that a chair of ebony had been placed for him opposite Namira, and another chair, less stately and imperial, had been placed at the left hand for Obexa. Zatula saw that his people were sitting likewise at other tables throughout the huge hall, with the frightful servants of Namira waiting upon them busily, like devils attending the damned. Then Satula perceived that a dark and corpse-like hand was pouring wine for him in a crystal cup, and upon the hand was a signet ring of the emperors of Zylac, set with a monstrous fire opal in the mouth of a golden bat, such a ring as Zotula wore perpetually on his index finger. Turning, he beheld at his right hand a figure that bore a likeness to his father Pidhaim, after the poison of the adder spreading through his limbs had left behind it the purple bloating of death, and Zotula, who had caused the adder to be placed in the bed of Pithaim, cowered in his seat and trembled with a guilty fear. The thing that wore the similitude of Pithaim, whether corpse or an image wrought by Namira's enchantment, 
came and went at Satula's elbow, waiting upon him with stark, black, swollen fingers that never fumbled. Horribly, he was aware of its bulging, unregarding eyes, and its livid, purple mouth that was locked in a rigor of mortal silence. And the spotted adder that peered at intervals with chill orbs from its heavy folded sleeves as it leaned beside him to replenish his cup or to serve him with meat. Dimly, through the icy mist of his terror, the Emperor beheld the shadowy armored shape like a moving replica of the still grim statue of the Sidon which Namira had reared up in his blasphemy to perform the same office for himself. And vaguely, without comprehension, he saw the dreadful mistrant that hovered beside Obexa, a flayed and eyeless corpse in the image of her first lover, a boy from Sintram who had been cast ashore in shipwreck on the Isle of Torturers. There Obexa had found him, lying behind the ebbing wave and reviving the boy. She had hidden him a while in a secret cave for her own pleasure, and had brought him food and drink. Later, wearying, she had betrayed him to the torturers, and had taken a new delight in the various pangs and ordeals inflicted upon him before his death by that cruel, pernicious people. Drink, said Namira, quaffing a strange wine that was red and dark as if with disastrous sunsets of lost years. Zotula and Abexa drank the wine, feeling no warmth in their veins thereafter, but a chill as of hemlock mounting slowly towards the heart. Verily, tis a good wine, said Namira, and a proper one in which to toast the furtherings of our acquaintance. For it was buried long ago with the royal dead, in amphora of somber jasper-shapen-like funeral urns, and my ghouls found it, when they came to dig into Soon. Now it seemed that the tongue of Zatula froze in his mouth, as a mandrake freezes in the rime-bound soil of winter, and he found no response to Namira's courtesy. Prithee take trial of this meat, quoth Namira, for it is very choice, being the flesh of that boar which the torturers of Ukastrog are wont to pasture on the well-minced leavings of their wheels and racks, and moreover, my cooks have spiced it with the powerful balsams of the tomb, and have farced it with the hearts of adders and the tongues of black cobras. Not could the emperor say, and even Obexa was silent, being sorely troubled in her turpitude by the presence of that flayed and piteous thing which had the likeness of her lover from Sintram. And their dread of the necromancer grew prodigiously, for his knowledge of this old forgotten crime and the raising of the phantasm appeared to her a more baleful magic than all else. Now I fear, said Namira, that you find the meat devoid of savor and the wine without fire. So to enliven our feasting, I shall call forth my singers and my musicians. He spoke a word unknown to Zatula or Obexa, which sounded throughout the mighty hall as if a thousand voices in turn had taken it up and prolonged it. Anon there appeared the singers, who were she-ghouls with shaven bodies and hairy shanks, and their long yellow bodies full of shredded carrion curving across their chaps from mouths that fawned hyena-wise on the company. Beyond them entered the musicians, 
some of whom were male devils pacing erect on the hindquarters of sable stallions and plucking with the fingers of white apes at lyres of the bone and sinew of cannibals from knot. And others were pied satyrs puffing their goatish cheeks at hautboys formed from bosom skin and horns of rhinoceri. They bowed before Namira with grotesque ceremony. Then, without delay, the she-ghouls began a most dolorous and execrable howling, as of jackals that have sniffed their carrion, and the satyrs and devils played a lament that was like the moaning of desert-born winds through forsaken palace harems. Zatula shivered, for the singing filled his marrow with ice and the music left in his heart a desolation as of empires fallen and trodden under by the iron-shod hooves of time. Ever amidst that evil music, he seemed to hear the shifting of sand across withered gardens and the windy rustling of rotted silks upon couches of bygone luxury, the hissing of coiled serpents from the low fusts of shattered columns, and the glory that had been Umos, seemed to pass away like the blown pillars of the Simum. Now that was a brave tune, said Namira when the music ceased and the she no longer howled. But verily, I fear that you find my entertainment somewhat dull. Therefore, my dancers shall dance for you. He turned towards the great hall and described in the air an enigmatic sign with the fingers of his right hand. In answer to the sign, a hueless mist came down from the high roof and hid the room like a fallen curtain for a brief interim. There was a babble of sounds, confused and muffled, beyond the curtain, and a crying of voices faint as if with distance. Then, dreadfully, the vapor rolled away, and Zatula saw that the laden tables had gone. In the wide inner spaces of the columns, the chamberlains, the eunuchs, the courtiers, and all the others lay trussed on the floor, like so many fowls of glorious plumage. Above them, in time to the music made by the lyrists and flutists of the necromancer, a troop of skeletons pirouetted with light clickings of their toe bones, and a rout of mummies bowed stiffly, and others of Namira's creatures moved with mysterious caperings, to and fro they leapt on the bodies of the emperor's people, in the paces of an evil saraband. At every step, they grew taller and heavier, till the saltant mummies were the mummies of Anakim, and the skeletons were bones of Colossi. And louder the music rose, drowning the faint cries of Satula's people. And huger still became the dancers, towering far into the vaulted shadow among the vast columns with thudding feet that wrought thunder in the room, and those whereon they danced were as grapes trampled for a vintage in autumn, and the floor ran deep with a sanguine must. As if a man drowning in a noisome night-bound fen, the emperor heard the voice of Namira. It would seem that my dancers please you not, so now I shall present you a most royal spectacle. Arise and follow me, for the spectacle is one that requires an empire for its stage. Zotula and Obexa rose in their chairs in the fashion of night walkers, giving no backward glance to their ministering phantoms or the halls where the dancers bounded. They followed Namira to an alcove beyond the altar of the Sidon. Thence, 
By an upward coiled stairway, they came at length to a broad high balcony that faced Zatula's palace, and looked forth above the city roofs toward the bourne of sunset. It seemed that several hours had gone by in that hellish feasting and entertainment, for the day was near to its close, and the sun, which had fallen from sight behind the imperial palace, was barring the vast heavens with bloody rays. Behold, said Namira, adding a strange vocable to which the stone of the edifice resounded like a beaten gong. The balcony pitched a little, and Zatula, looking over the balustrade, beheld the roofs of Umos lessen and sinken beneath him. It seemed that the balcony flew skyward to a prodigious height, and he peered down upon the domes of his own palace, upon the houses, the tilled fields, and the desert beyond, and the huge sun brought low on the desert's verge. Zatula grew giddy, and the chill airs and the upper heavens blew upon him, but Namira spoke another word, and the balcony ceased to ascend. Look well, said the necromancer, on the empire that was yours, but shall be yours no longer. Then with arms outstretched towards the sunset, he called aloud the twelve names that were perdition to utter, and after them the tremendous invocation. Napadambis Devampra Instantly, it seemed that great ebon clouds of thunder beetled against the sun. Lining the horizon, the clouds took the form of colossal monsters, with heads somewhat resembling those of stallions. Rearing terribly, they trod down the sun like an extinguishing ember and racing as if in some hippodrome of titans, they rose higher and vaster coming towards Umos. Deep, calamitous rumblings preceded them, and the earth shook visibly, till Zatula saw that they were not immaterial clouds, but actual living forms that had come forth to tread the world in macrocosmic vastness. Throwing their shadows for many leagues before them, the coursers charged as if devil-ridden into Zylac, and their feet descended like falling mountain crags upon far oases and towns of the outer wastes. Like a many-turreted storm they came, and it seemed that the world shrank gulfward, tilting beneath the weight. Still, as a man enchanted into marble, Zatula stood and beheld the ruining that was wrought on his empire. Closer drew the gigantic stallions, racing with inconceivable speed, and louder was the thundering of their footfalls that now began to blot the green fields and fruited orchards lying for many miles to the west of Umos. The shadow of the stallion climbed like an evil gloom of eclipse, till it covered Umos, and looking up, the emperor saw their eyes halfway between earth and zenith. Then, in the thickening gloom, above the insupportable thunder, he heard the voice of Nimira, crying in mad triumph. Know, Zatula, that I have called up the coursers of Thamagorgos, lords of the abyss, and the coursers will tread your empire down. Even... As your palfrey trod and trampled in former time a beggar boy named Narthos. And learn, 
also that I, Namira, was that boy. The eyes of Namira filled with a vain glory of madness and bale, burning like malign, disastrous stars at the hour of their culmination. To Zatula, wholly mazed with the horror and tumult, the necromancer's words were no more than shrill, shrieked overtones of the Tempest of Doom, and he understood them not, tremendously, with a rending of staunch-built roofs and an instant cleavage and crumbling down of mighty masonries, the hooves descended upon Umos. Fair temple domes were pashed like shells, and haughty mansions were broken and stamped into the ground even as gourds, and house by house. The city was trampled flat, with a crashing as of worlds beaten into chaos. Far below in the darkened streets, Men fled like scurrying emmets, but could not escape. Implacably, the hooves rose and fell, till ruin was upon half the city, and night was over all. The palace of Zatula was trodden under, and now the forelegs of the coursers loomed level with Namira's balcony, and their heads towered awfully above. It seemed as though they would rear and trample down the necromancer's house, but at the last moment they parted left and right, and a dolorous glimmering came from the low sunset. And the coursers went on, treading under them that portion of Umos which lay to the eastward. Zotula and Obexa and Namira looked down on the city's fragments as on a shard-strewn midden, and heard the cataclysmic clamor of the hooves departing towards eastern Zylac. Now that was a goodly spectacle, quoth Namira. Then turning to the emperor, he added malignly, Think not that I am done with thee, however, or that doom is yet consummate. It seemed that the balcony had fallen to its former elevation, which was still a lofty vantage above the sharded ruins. Namira plucked the emperor by the arm and led him from the balcony to an inner chamber, while Obexa followed mutely. The emperor's heart was crushed within him by the trampling of such calamities, and despair weighed upon him like a foul incubus on the shoulders of a man lost in some land of accursed night. And he knew not that he had been parted from Obexa on the threshold of the chamber, and that certain of Namira's creatures appearing like shadows had compelled her to go downward with them by the stairs, and had stifled her outcries with their rotten cerements as they went. The chamber was one that Namira used for his most unhallowed rites and alchemies. The rays of the lamps that illuminated it were saffron-red like the split ichor of devils, and they flowed on instruments and crucibles and black alanthors and alembics, wherefore the purpose was hardly to be named by mortal man. The sorcerer heated in one of the alembics a dark liquid full of star-cold lights, while Zatula looked on unheeding. When the liquid bubbled and sent forth a spiral vapor, Namira distilled it into goblets of gold-rimmed iron, and gave one of the goblets to Zatula and retained the other for himself. He said to Zatula with a stern imperative voice, I bid thee quaff this liquor. Zatula, fearing the draft was poison, hesitated. 
The necromancer regarded him with a lethal gaze and cried loudly, Fearest thou to do? And therewith he set the goblet to his lips. So the emperor drank the draft, constrained as if by the bidding of some angel of death, and a darkness fell upon his senses. But ere the darkness grew complete, he saw that Namira had drained his own goblet. Then, with unspeakable agonies, it seemed that the emperor died, and his soul floated free, and again he saw the chamber through bodiless eyes. Discarnate, he stood in the saffron crimson light, with his body lying as if dead on the floor beside him, and near it, the prone body of Namira and the two fallen goblets. Standing thus, he beheld a strange thing. For anon, his own body stirred and arose, while that of the necromancer remained still as death. Zatula looked at his own lineaments, and his figure, in its short cloak and azure samite sewn with black pearls and ballast rubies, and the body lived before him, though with eyes that held a darker fire and a deeper evil than was his wont. Then without corporeal ears, Zatula heard the figure speak, and the voice was the strong, arrogant voice of Namira saying, Follow me, O houseless phantom. Like an unseen shadow, Zatula followed the wizard, and the twain went downward by the stairs to the great banquet hall. They came to the altar of the Sidon and the mailed image, with the seven horse skull lamps burning before it as formerly. Upon the altar, Zatula's beloved Obexa, who alone of all women had power to stir his sated heart, was lying bound at the Sidon's feet. The hall beyond was deserted, and nothing remained of that Saturnalia of doom, except the fruit of the treading, which had flowed together in dark pools among the columns. Namira, using the Emperor's body in all ways for his own, paused before the dark Eidolon, and he said to the spirit of Zatula, Be imprisoned in this image, without power to free thyself or to stir in any wise. Being wholly obedient to the will of the necromancer, the soul of Zatula was entombed in the statue, and he felt its cold, gigantic armor around him like a straight sarcophagus, and he peered forth immovably from the bleak eyes that were overhung by its carven helmet. Gazing thus, he beheld the change that had come to his own body through the sorceress possession of Namira. For below the short azure cloak, his legs had turned suddenly to the hind legs of a black stallion, with hooves that glowed readily as if heated by internal flames. Even as Zatula watched this prodigy, the hooves glowed white and incandescent, and fumes mounted from the floor beneath them. Then on the black altar, the hybrid abomination came pacing haughtily towards Obexa, and smoking footprints appeared behind as it came, pausing beside the woman, who lay supine and helpless regarding it with eyes that were pools of frozen horror. It raised one glowing hoof and set it on her chest, pressing into the garment of golden filigree begemmed with rubies. The girl screamed beneath the atrocious treading as the soul of one newly damned might scream in hell, and the hoof glared with intolerable brilliance, as if freshly plucked from a furnace wherein weapons of demons were forged. At that moment, in the cowed and crushed and sodden shade of the Emperor Zatula, 
Close locked in the adamantine image, there awoke the manhood that had slumbered unaroused before the ruining of his own empire and the trampling of his retinue. Immediately a great abhorrence and a high wrath were alive in his soul, and mightily he longed for his own right arm to serve him and a sword in his right hand. Then it seemed a voice spoke within him, chill and bleak and awful, and as if uttered inwardly by the statue itself, the voice said, I am the Sidon, lord of the seven hells beneath the earth, and the hells of man's heart above the earth, which are seven times seven. For the moment, O Zotula, my power is become thine for the sake of mutual vengeance. Be one in all ways with the statue that has my likeness, even as the soul is one with the flesh. Behold, there is a mace of adamant in thy right hand. Lift up the mace and smite. Zatula was aware of a sudden great power within him, and the giant stone thews about him responded agilely to his will. He felt in his mailed hand the heft of the giant's spiky-headed mace, and though the mace was beyond the lifting of any man in mortal flesh, it seemed no more than a goodly weight to Zatula. Then, rearing the mace like a warrior in battle, he struck down with one crashing blow the impious thing that wore his own rightful flesh. And the thing crumpled swiftly down and lay with the brain spreading pulpily from its shattered skull on the shining jet. The legs twitched a little, then grew still, and the hooves glowed from a fiery blinding white to the redness of red-hot iron cooling slowly. For a space there was no sound other than the shill screaming of Obexa, mad with pain and the terror of those prodigies which she had beheld. Then in the soul of Zotula grown sick from that screaming, the chill awful voice of the Sidon spoke again. Go free, for there is nothing more for thee to do. So the spirit of Zotula passed from the image of the Sidon, and found in the wide air the freedom of nothingness and oblivion. But the end was not yet for Namira whose mad, arrogant soul had been loosened from Zatula's body by the blow, and had returned, not in the matter planned by the magician, to its own body lying in the room of accursed rites and forbidden transmigrations. There, Namira woke anon, with a dire confusion in his mind and a partial forgetfulness, for the curse of the Sidon was upon him now because of his blasphemies. Nothing was clear in his thought except a malign, exorbitant longing for revenge, but the reason thereof and the object were as doubtful shadows. Still prompted by that obscure animus, he arose, and girding to his side an enchanted sword with runic sapphires and opals in the hilt, he descended the stairs and came again to the altar of the Sidon, where the mailed statue stood as impassive as before with the poised mace in its immovable right hand, and below it on the altar, the double sacrifice. A veil of weird darkness was upon the senses of Namira, 
and he saw not the stallion-legged horror that lay dead with slowly blackening hooves, and he heard not the moaning of Obexa, who still lived beside it. But his eyes were drawn by the diamond mirror that was upheld in the claws of black iron basilisks beyond the altar. And going to the mirror, he saw therein a face that he knew no longer as his own, and because his eyes were shadowed, and his brain filled with the shifting webs of delusion, he took the face for that of the Emperor Zatula. Insatiable as hell's own flame, his own hatred rose within him, and he drew the enchanted sword and began to hew therewith at the reflection. Sometimes, because of the curse laid upon him and the impious transmigration which he had performed, he thought himself Zatula, warring with the necromancer, and again, in the shiftings of his madness, he was Namira, smiting at the Emperor. Soon, the sorceress blade, though tempered with formidable spells, was broken close to the hilt. But Nymira beheld the image still unharmed. Then, howling aloud the half-forgotten runes of a most tremendous curse made invalid through his own forgettings, he hammered still with the heavy sword hilt on the mirror till the runic sapphires and opals cracked in the hilt and fell away at his feet in little fragments. Obexa, dying on the altar, saw Namira battling with his own image, and the spectacle moved her to mad laughter, like the pealing of bells of ruined crystal. Above her laughter, and above the cursings of Namira, there came anon, like the rumbling of a swift-driven storm, the thunder made by the macrocosmic stallions of Thamagorgos, returning gulfward through Zylac over Umos to trample down the one house that they had spared aforetime. This episode was co-produced by Melissa Starr. The music in today's episode was provided by EpidemicSound.com. We release a new episode almost every week, so make sure to subscribe for free on the platform of your choice, and if you can, leave us a rating or review. You can also follow the show on Twitter at PulpThePodcast, or reach out to me directly via email at Jonathan at PulpThePodcast.com. I'm Jonathan Pezza, your host, and thank you for listening.